This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. On Wednesday, hospitalizations for COVID-19 passed 15,000. The Florida Hospital Association says that's nearly 150% of last year's peak of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Hotspots in Jacksonville, Central and South Florida are crowding hospitals and putting pressure on frontline medical staff. Justin Senior, CEO of the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida, is hoping case numbers will start to fall in the coming weeks. If not, he says it will really stress hospital capacity statewide. Justin Senior, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So we've heard from some doctors that basically there's a crisis in the hospitals. There was a surgeon at Advent Health, not one of the safety net hospitals, who tweeted earlier in the week that Central Florida needs a field hospital. What's your assessment? Are we in a crisis in Central Florida or in Florida as far as safety net hospitals are concerned? You know, hospitals certainly are really busy. Uh, the, the number of patients has been climbing dramatically over the course of the last five weeks. Um, and, and in some parts of the states, uh, some parts of the state, the, the actual census now has passed the records uh, for COVID patients previously set last July or last January. Uh, I would definitely say that Orlando is somewhat of a hotspot. Uh, Jacksonville, Orlando, and then uh, the Dade County and Broward County line, Memorial Healthcare System, which is one of our members, definitely is seeing a massive influx. Others, uh, they're certainly seeing significant numbers, but not necessarily record numbers like they were seeing last year. You know, uh, hospitals have a lot of strategies that they can employ to increase their capacity as well as to to, uh, free up their staff. So, not every one of those strategies that I'm aware of has been employed so far. And I think that I think that hospitals are hopeful that this particular surge is starting to peak and, and hopefully can start going down in the next uh, week or two. Uh, but again, if it, if it does continue to go up, it is going to really stress uh, the, the hospital capacity in the state. At the start of the pandemic last year, there were field hospitals put in place and it turned out that most of them weren't needed, but they had that extra capacity just in case. Are we going to see that again? Are we going to see a need for field hospitals or or kind of extra capacity built on site? It, that, that's a possibility, but I, I don't know that uh, I don't know that there are that many hospitals in the state of Florida that are there yet. I mean, the first thing that most hospitals do if they're going to try to increase capacity is they're going to start postponing in whole or in part their scheduled procedures, things like hip replacements and knee replacements that, while they're medically necessary have the potential to be safely postponed maybe for four weeks or eight weeks. And we've definitely seen a lot of hospitals do that. Um, when, if you did that statewide, what we saw last year, uh, when all hospitals were required to postpone their, uh, their scheduled procedures, was that frees up probably between 20 and 25,000 hospital beds in the state of Florida. Um, it, it, the state itself has about 60,000 beds. So that, that frees up quite a lot of capacity. And now I think a lot of hospitals are kind of working with the with that capacity that they've created. Um, you can also cross-train uh, nurses. You can do staff augmentation, uh, which could potentially increase your capacity. Uh, you could potentially also start moving in, in, in the Orlando area, moving some of the normal pediatric patients uh, to the to whether an embedded children's hospital like Arnold Palmer or, or, or a standalone children's hospital like the Moores. Uh, so that you would have more capacity for adult COVID patients, because one thing one thing that we're seeing is that only a very small fraction of a percentage uh, of these uh, these current surge is pediatric. Um, you also could create what these kind of disaster medical assistance team sort of units, which are tents and, and temporary facilities that you could bring in uh, to and staff. 
uh, that could create more capacity for you. I don't see a lot uh, of that yet. And, and again, Advent is not a member. I'm not aware of any of my members having made that request at this point. Not to say that if the numbers don't continue to rise, that's not something that they would do. You mentioned pediatric patients. I mean, one thing to note, one thing that has been noted about the Delta variant surge is that there are there seem to be more pediatric patients than there were with previous iterations of COVID. So does that change the equation a bit? There there has not been a a surge of pediatric patients that has changed the equation at this point. Um, What we've seen in our hospitals, and our hospitals are, in many instances, standalone children's hospitals, or they are uh, hospitals that have very large embedded children's dedicated facilities, things like Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital, all around the state. Um, So we see, I think, more pediatric patients than most general hospitals would. Um, and we're only seeing about one and a half percent of the patients overall that are coming in are under the age of 18 or 18 and under. Um, so it's, it's a very small percentage of the patients who are pediatric. The 18 and under population is probably 20 to 25 percent of the population in the state of Florida, maybe 21, 22 percent, somewhere in there. They're barely one percent of the patients here. Um, and so that's actually a silver lining that does give you some flexibility in terms of trying to create capacity and working with pediatric providers uh, to try to free up capacity for adults. What do you need then? In, in your assessment, what does the state need to do? What does the federal government need to do? Because from what you know, frontline staff are saying, it, it does sound like things are not great at the moment in terms of the, the influx of patients. So the first thing is, is that this puts an immense amount of pressure on staff. So what happens is, is hospitals are part of, part of what they do is infection control. And everything in the hospital is designed around infection control, from the ventilation systems and separate airborne infection isolation rooms, to the intake process, uh, to how they don and off personal protective equipment. And, and uh, frankly, even the metal alloys used in the fixtures are designed for control. This is a particularly infectious virus, and it's really, really uh, puts a lot of it really puts a lot of stress on the staff in the intake process, in donning and doffing personal protective equipment, and being careful with their hygiene. Um, it, it really takes processes, even like food delivery, that normally take only ten or fifteen minutes to deliver food to a floor. If there are COVID patients on that floor, that food delivery person has to don and doff personal protective equipment as they enter and exit every single room. And- takes a 10-minute, 15-minute process, turns it into a two-hour ordeal. It's a really high-stress environment. So staff is definitely working overtime. Um, Some of our hospitals have asked for staff augmentation or have have, have sought from agency staff augmentation. But I will say it's a a little bit different when it comes to what this pandemic was back in January last year. Um, You asked what what are terms of assistance from the federal and state governments the biggest key here is going to be communication around staffing needs. If staffing needs start to really, if you if you start to have a patient census that really blows well past your staffing needs, it's going to be important that the state and federal governments have a strategy to help the hospital augment their own staff and work with it. In terms of what the state of Florida did last year, there were really, really, uh, it was an intricate logistical um, uh, conundrum last year in terms of how you handled the patient load because the patients last year were very old and very frail, often living in nursing facilities or in assisted living facilities or in uh, independent living facilities that catered to uh, frail elders. And, and when, you, when you discharge that population, you had to make sure that that population was, uh, 
was COVID free or else they would go back into an environment, spread the virus and bring it back. That caused the state of Florida and the hospitals to really have to work together to make sure that when someone didn't need to be in the hospital anymore, but was still testing positive for COVID, that there was a place for them to go that you could create COVID-only facilities where someone that didn't need to be in the hospital anymore could convalesce until they didn't test positive for COVID anymore, and then you could send them back to their nursing facility or assisted living facility. There was so much planning that went into that to make sure that we were not, as hospitals, discharging people into a situation where they're going to make the problem worse. Now, the actual age of the population is in its 40s and 50s, for the most part, because the elderly population in the state of Florida has largely been vaccinated. Um, because of that, the discharge process is a lot easier and a lot of the logistics that were required last year aren't as necessary this year. The key now is gonna be staff. You can't overwork your staff. You've gotta make sure your staff stays at the top of its game, that morale stays high and that you don't overwork them and that you have the staff that you need to serve the population that's showing up. Okay, so how are you going to get those staff? Like, that sounds like it's going to be a squeeze point in the future, in the near future. It, it could. One other thing that was happening last year that's not happening right now, I, I know that there's a lot being said about the staff not being 100% vaccinated, and, and that's technically true. Um, but there is, there is a pretty high vaccination rate among frontline workers. One thing that was happening last year is that when COVID was spreading like wildfire in the community, our staff works in the community. They catch it just like everybody else. They come in in the morning, they test positive, they get knocked offline. And that was actually pulling staff away and putting them in quarantine at the time that you needed them the most. Because there's a very high percentage of physicians, frontline physicians, over 90%, I would think, as well as frontline nurses, those numbers are probably closer to 50 to 70% who have been vaccinated already. And, and some of the ones that haven't been vaccinated may have already caught it. So they do have some natural immunity. You know, we're getting fewer staff members knocked offline this time around. So their own staff is a little bit able, a little bit better able to handle the influx. Um, if the numbers continue to rise and, uh, and hospitals around the state need more staff, um, that's a matter of communication with federal and state authorities to figure out where that staff can come from. One of the big stories last year, too, during the surge or even before that was the um the demand for PPE and, and other things too, like ventilators. How are hospitals in the Safety Net Hospital Network doing now? Do they have enough of the the equipment they need? Yes, they do. I, I actually asked about their supply situation yesterday, pulled all of the CEOs of all of my systems and did not have any code red, we need the following or we're you know, not, not masked, not anything. I, I, they, they have what they need. I, there, there has been... Um, in the state in the last 10 days or so, our, our, our hospitals had some frustration on oxygen. Um, it's, uh, they, they started to run low and, uh, and they were getting their deliveries, but the deliveries were kind of sporadic and they tended to be just in time. And it was a little bit more of a white knuckle experience than, than our CEOs were really willing to stomach. And so there's been discussion with the State Emergency Operations Center and uh, good communication, and that is that has been you know is in the process of being ironed out. But nobody's run out of oxygen, um, and uh, and they're kind of smoothing out the supply chain with state officials right now. And and it's been I think it's it's bearing fruit. Um, but nobody's run out of anything, and there has not been any shortages of any other supply. Uh, you know that 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 appears to be you know systemic at all. What's your message to staff at the hospitals? Then what what do you think is the takeaway for them? 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I really, it's a matter of appreciation of everything that they do. Um, that w- what what they they've done an incredible job in this in this pandemic, and uh, the state of Florida has had a better than the national average fatality rate, uh, better than the average, uh, better than the national average confirmed case fatality rate, and better than the national average deaths versus expectation over the course of 2020 and early 2021. And, and it's a testament to the hard work that they put into it. If you, if you told someone in 2019 that a pandemic was coming, that was going to disproportionately take the lives of people 65 and over, you would have thought Florida would have, was going to be well above uh, the national average in terms of fatalities because we are one of the oldest states in the union. What they have done logistically and, uh, and the work that they put in for their communities has been extraordinary. They should be thanked. Uh, I know that they're going through a very, very difficult time, but what they've done has been amazing. Uh, and uh, and hopefully, you know, we're going to see this start to turn down in terms of the number of cases and in terms of, of the number of hospitalizations soon, that maybe there is going to be a little bit of a reprieve here uh, coming shortly. If not, I think all you can say is, is that the hospitals will do everything they can to, to make sure that they're not overworked, that they're properly treated, and that uh, and that they maintain you know the top level of of treatment to the to the patients, and and that the hospitals will do everything they can to augment the staff as as this goes forward if it continues to get worse. But I think that there's definitely hope that that it will get better. Just thinking about those numbers too. I mean, fatalities versus expectations. That doesn't take away from the fact though that there there is still those raw data, right? I mean, we're still kind of closing in on three million cases overall across the state of Florida and 40,000 deaths. And I think there was some hope, I think, earlier on, like last year, that we could flatten the curve and and not be approaching that level by now. It's it's really uh, this particular wave and the size of it and this new variant and the contagiousness of it, I think, has caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, it has overwhelmingly affected, in terms of hospitalization, um, it has overwhelmingly affected the unvaccinated Um, And yet the unvaccinated adult population, which is primarily who it is, that's only probably at this point five or six million people of the 22 million people in the state of Florida that are responsible for almost the the entirety of this wave. So it's really surprising. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's disappointing that this didn't work out, you know, the the way that everyone was hoping that we'd reach a certain vaccination threshold and this would COVID would sort of quietly go to the background. Um, you know, you can you just have to deal with 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 what's in front of you, um, and uh, and hopefully in the coming weeks we have seen another silver lining of this, which is that people have gone out and gotten the vaccines. Um, you can see the numbers going up in the state of Florida uh, in terms of vaccine doses per week, and if you look at the underlying data to that, what you'll see is is that it is overwhelmingly now first doses and not second doses, which is the indication of a vaccine initiative that is ramping up. And not one that is that is winding down. So that's some, that's a silver lining as well, um, and uh, and hopefully that continues. That as we pull more and more people to safety, if you will, from hospitalization and from becoming a fatality, uh, we will uh, you know we'll we'll get into a better and better position. When it comes to uh, you know the the, the the numbers that I said around confirmed case fatality rate, overall fatality per, fatalities per capita, as well as deaths versus expectation, Florida does continue to outpace the national average on those. Um, and if you age adjust those those uh, those statistics, so you compare the size of a state 65 and over population to its 65 and over fatalities, its under 65 population to its under 65 fatalities, Florida actually moves very close to the top in terms of its performance here 
And, and again, I have to commend the staff and how hard they've worked and how hard they planned and worked with state emergency management officials uh, to, to, to try to put the logistics in place to get the best result for the people of the state of Florida. And I, I think we just have to keep plugging away. And my appreciate, I can't, I can't express my appreciation for what they do enough. Justin Senior is the CEO of the Safety Net Hospital Alliance of Florida. Justin, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, how to overcome vaccine hesitancy. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The latest surge in COVID-19 cases, driven by a highly infectious Delta variant of the virus, has been called a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Epidemiologists and leaders in healthcare and government have been working to try and understand and to overcome vaccine hesitancy. For more on why people choose not to get a COVID vaccine and how to change their minds, I spoke to Anne Cristiano. Well, Anne Cristiano is the director of the Centre for Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida College of Journalism. She's one of the co-authors of a new guide that aims to increase vaccination rates amongst certified nursing assistants, or CNAs. It's one of three projects focused on vaccine hesitancy that the Centre of Public Interest Communications has produced since the start of the pandemic. Anne Cristiano joins me now. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to talk with you today. So the guide you produced with uh, Centre Research Director Annie Neiman and Postdoctoral Research Associate Jack Barry is titled Invest in Trust, a Guide for Building COVID-19 Vaccine Trust and Increasing Vaccination Rates Among CNAs. Tell me a little bit about how the guide aims to build that trust and increase vaccination rates. Well, one of the things that we saw in this community that has been such an essential group of people caring so much for the most vulnerable people is that while they are putting themselves really at the point of care, they are more hesitant than other areas of the population, despite the fact that they face far greater harm and risk. And so that seems incredibly counterintuitive. Um, But as we started to uh, explore the research and really listen um, to certified nursing assistants who are both intending to get the vaccine and not intending to get the vaccine, one of the things that we saw is that those who were not intending to get vaccinated did not trust their employers. In fact, not one cited their employer as a trusted source of information. And so one of the things that we recognized very early in this project was that encouraging people to make the choice to get vaccinated is fundamentally about trust. Not just trust in the vaccines, but trust in those who are asking us to get it or requiring now increasingly us to get it. That seems like a pretty high bar to clear, though, if you don't trust your employer. I mean, that seems like it would be a lot of work. That's more than just a simple sit-down conversation with somebody about vaccinations, right? It seems like there's a much deeper problem here. For sure. Uh, And I think a lot of employers are recognizing that they really need to invest in in creating space for those conversations where they can build trust, Um, creating office hours with medical experts so that people can have private conversations to talk about their concerns, showing respect and concern and compassion for people's choices and and recognizing them for the lived experience and expertise that they have. That's not necessarily part of the culture 
of every work environment. So yeah, some work environments are finding that they have to kind of revisit their organizational culture. If we don't have time though to completely rebuild organizational culture, then that means that we have to go to the people they do trust, those peers, those colleagues, those people who may not necessarily have a fancy title or a lot of obvious power within the organization, but people who are deeply trusted and connected. And so there are, I think, eight steps to the guide, beginning with establishing trust and ending with celebrating success as a community, but also addressing fear at the individual level, which I think is an interesting concept. I wonder, if though, if you could highlight some of the most important steps in that kind of eight-step process. Yeah, and I think it really starts with, number one, making sure that people have very easy access to the vaccine, um, that they are getting that paid time off, that they're getting vouchers for transportation or childcare. Recognizing that a lot of the people who haven't yet chosen to become vaccinated are facing a lot of a lot of really big challenges in life. Like if you look at certified nursing assistants, many of them are working double shifts, many of them are working two and three jobs. These are not well paid employees. And so, you know, with their limited time off, they're not necessarily going to want to spend that on a bus going to a vaccination site. And so the more that we can do those on-site campaigns that really um, create an air of celebration, um, that's really important. But the issue isn't always access. Um, the issue can also be that people bring really varied fears um, and concerns to their choices about vaccination. And I think we've sort of, as a country, been collectively looking for the thing that will get us over the hump. You know, people often talk about with the polio vaccine, um, Elvis Presley getting vaccinated as sort of this sort of essential moment in which the, the world collectively said, oh, this is safe. But I find it hard to believe that Elvis getting vaccinated was the sole thing that pushed us over the edge. I think a lot of it was people talking to their own doctors and their doctors saying, we need to protect our children. These, what is happening to our children is horrific and we have a solution to it. So yeah, the Elvis may have helped for some people, but at the end of the day, it's really those trusted messengers who are part of our daily lives. Right, and there've been plenty of examples of um, people searching for an Elvis moment in this pandemic, right? There have been untold celebrities saying, I'm going to get vaccinated on camera. It could be that that's had an influence on some people, but I mean, there's, there's a, it's a completely different media environment we're in now, right? There's, there's not just sort of one or two or three sources of, of mass media for people to consume. There's just multitudes. Multitudes, exactly. And, and that's for a bunch of reasons and in large part, because there were many people who were not well served by the media um, in those moments when media was controlled by just a few sources. Um, and so there's, you know, this flourishing of, of new forms of media that affirm people's worldviews. Um, and that cuts both ways, right? Yeah. If you're just joining me, uh, my guest is Anne Cristiano. She's the director of the Center for Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida College of Journalism, talking about the research she's been working on aimed at increasing vaccination rates and addressing vaccine hesitancy in certain groups. So this template you've developed or the guide for, for CNAs, can it be applied to other groups? Like, How do you see it kind of being applied elsewhere? I think the basic framework of listen first, really listen to what people's concerns are, what their barriers are, affirm, like, 
I'm afraid of the long-term effects or I'm afraid that it'll harm my opportunities to get pregnant. Affirming like, gosh, yeah, that, that is scary. That's, I, I can understand why you would be worried about that. Um, and then really, you know, coming back to them with your own personal experience um, because our behaviors are very um, deeply informed and influenced by our perceptions of what people like us are doing. So that person that we see as part of our in-group, that person that we see as part of our inner trusted circle is going to be the one that sort of has the free pass to influencing our choices. So if I talk to my dad about it and um, explain to him why it is so important to me and his granddaughters that he get vaccinated, that's going to have a lot more impact than that guy he's playing golf with who's telling him about chips being ejected to his arms. <laughs> you would hope so. And now this is not the only uh, study or, or guide that you've worked on with your group around vaccine hesitancy. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about some of the other research you've done with other groups and for other organizations? Sure. Um, our first um, foray into this work was actually working with the UN. Uh, they reached out to us and said, could you create um, an overview of what the research tells us for um, digital ambassadors around the world? And so um, it's, it's funny because I had I always said that this was the one area of work that I just didn't want to touch because it's so complex and so nuanced. But the extraordinary need that we have to go to the research, to go and see what the human mind tells us, uh, what research into how the mind works tells us about, um, about um, how people are making these decisions is so essential. And we were just... We were seeing a lot of people developing guides, but not really going to that science. So um, that UN guide was a, an important opportunity for us to begin to understand the complex reasons that people bring to their choices about vaccination and their health choices. Um, and then after that, uh, we were um, approached by the National Association of Manufacturers and the Manufacturing Institute to begin to look at um, what might what might encourage people who are working in those manufacturing positions to uh, to go ahead and get vaccinated. And that was a project led by my colleague, Matt Sheehan, uh, another one of my colleagues in the center. Um, and so they are just now rolling that out um, among their membership. And we're really excited to see kind of what the uptake is and what that looks like. But all of our guides are deeply, deeply researched. Uh, we're going to the foremost experts in the field, really listening to them, surfacing what we, what we think might work, and then checking that uh, with uh, robust surveys of, of the very communities that we're hoping to reach. It must be an interesting field to be looking into right now because everything is changing so quickly, right? I mean, we're in, in the throes of another surge, things are pretty scary and just anecdotally uh, the vaccination rate I think is picking up like there are long lines at places when you where you can get vaccinated even getting tests is quite tricky now because everybody wants to get tested and you know make sure they're okay um, does that throw a bit of a wrench in the works as far as you're concerned when you're trying to carry out some of this research 
I mean, not really, uh, because we continue to see the same themes come up across the different communities um, that we're that we're looking at. Everybody wants to be affirmed for who they are. Everybody wants their identities to be affirmed, and we see that at, across the different communities that we've worked with. But one area where we are starting to see a need to pivot is that um, as organizations are increasingly looking at mandates, they're not necessarily being hyper-intentional about how they're communicating those mandates. And it's really essential that they spend a lot of time thinking about how those are going to be received and communicate the mandates, not with a tone of, of insistence, but with a tone of compassion that we are creating this mandate because we love you and we care about you and you are important to us and our work is important and we need to be able to carry forward and get through all of this. And I think that's been one of the missteps in communication throughout the pandemic is that the sense of urgency has crowded out that basic human compassion and respect. Just going back to that idea of people seeking affirmation, I mean, you say it's quite hard to really change people's minds. I wonder if you could dig into that in a little more depth and you know what does that mean for people who are really trying in this case very hard to get people to change their minds about vaccines for sure and i think it's um the the bad news is that people don't change their minds um we we want to retain our positive sense of self more than anything else and so when you're talking with a loved one and recognize that you any of you are, are quite frankly, probably the best possible people to have this conversation. So when you're talking to a loved one about getting vaccinated, really affirming their choices. I know you said that you wanted to wait and see what the long-term effects have been, but now we've had these vaccines for nearly a year and we haven't seen any of the, of the things that you're concerned about. And maybe you should have a chat with your doctor about that. Um, and so, you know, really kind of thinking about how you can have this cumulative effect um, with multiple conversations and affirmations and um, recognizing that you are probably not going to get somebody from adamantly choosing not to get the vaccine to getting the vaccine in a single conversation, that it's going to be a series of conversations, not just with you, but with others. Where does social media fit into this? Because... If, if you just look at you know a couple of platforms like Twitter and Facebook, those can be places where information is is sometimes misinterpreted, and people can pile on, right? I mean, if you if you're talking about the idea that you need to be compassionate spreading the message, you don't see a lot of that on Twitter, for example. You know, people who aren't getting vaccinated are often just ridiculed or you know celebrated, just depending on on where people are. So it seems like there's a high degree of polarization on a lot of social media platforms, but can it also be a force for good and spreading good information? And I'm just sort of wondering about your thoughts on how that might happen. Yeah, and I think about this a lot um, in the context of, of where our social norms are and how we engage online. You know, some, of the, some of the research suggests that people who are to whom we are loosely tied um, as they're posting, they are influencing our behavior and choices. Um, but I think one of the, we're, we've got a project that we're completing now that's been funded for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it's a series of guides for how to have personal conversations with the people you love about why they should get vaccinated. And I think 
we're excited about that because that seems like a really constructive use of social media. It's not just trying to create a placard that somebody's going to see and have this epiphany like, oh, yes, of course I should get vaccinated. But instead, um, creating a tool where people can have people have the skills and confidence to have those personal conversations with their loved ones. So getting the online conversation into people's individual Zoom chats, into their living rooms and kitchens. And I think that that can be, you know, that ability to give people those skills through social media um, could be one of the best ways to use that as a tool to begin to, to shift people who may not have cho chosen it. Because what we see now is a lot of people who are throwing up stories and articles and memes that affirm how they already see this. And we all do that. We are all guilty of that. I'm working on these projects over the last several months. What do you think about how widespread vaccine hesitancy is? Like how how willing do you think in general people are to to get a vaccine? You know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that while our country is deeply focused on making sure that every single person gets vaccinated who can be vaccinated, um, that we have to be mindful of not promoting what I think of as a paradoxical, paradoxical social norm. So that's basically creating a perception that not getting vaccinated is far more widespread than it actually is. So we've heard a lot of coverage by really excellent journalists about vaccine concerns and vaccine hesitance, but far more Americans than not are choosing to get vaccinated. And I think it's really important to, to look at that um, across all of our communities, that in, in more communities than not, most people are choosing to get vaccinated. And it's really important to lead with that point to avoid creating a perception that people like me aren't getting vaccinated and therefore I shouldn't either. Well, and Cristiano, Director of the Center for Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida College of Journalism. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation. Up next, the mother of a 10-year-old who's joined a lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis calls his ban on mask mandates in public schools grossly irresponsible. We're back with that conversation after this. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Kids are back in class for the new school year and COVID cases are ticking up. Amid calls for a return to social distancing and mask mandates, Governor Ron DeSantis instead issued an order banning mask mandates in public schools. A number of school districts are defying the order and 11 families with children with disabilities are suing the governor. Attorneys with a non-profit disability independence group say these kids are more at risk from COVID-19 and they argue the governor is forcing school districts to violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. WMFE's Joe Burns spoke to an attorney and an Orange County mom of a 10-year-old with Down syndrome about the lawsuit. I'm here over Zoom talking with attorney Matt Dietz with a disability independence group and Judy Hayes, who's the mom of a 10-year-old boy who has Down syndrome. They are involved in a lawsuit against Governor DeSantis and uh, several school districts and the state over his ban on universal mask mandates in schools because it can dramatically affect kids with disabilities. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joe, for having us. And, and Judy, I, I really, really appreciate your taking part in this. You're an Orange County mom, right? Yes, that's right. 
Your son Will goes to school in Orange County. I want to start with a question from Matt. What prompted this lawsuit on behalf of 11 families who have kids with disabilities? Well, what initially prompted it was the fact that um, all of these parents want to go to school in a safe environment. And when Governor DeSantis passed his executive order um, a few weeks ago, it became impossible for the school districts themselves to provide a safe environment for any of the students that have disabilities that would have um, additional injury or even death if they caught COVID. What are you asking uh, for from the federal judge? Well, we're asking him to, in essence, find that um, Governor DeSantis's executive order um, allowing folks not to wear masks is a violation of the ADA because what it essentially does is it prohibits kids with disabilities to go to school safely and excludes them from schools. School is started, it started on Tuesday in Orange County. So there's an urgency to this, right? Oh, it's unbelievably urgent. And, and many parents are deciding not even to send their kids to school because they're afraid. They're afraid that, that there's not going to be those protections in place. And it's, it's just not worth it for them. There's a lawsuit, but there's also a petition for a preliminary injunction. Is that right? Correct. Um, we, we filed, we wanted immediate relief from the court. We filed a case in the Southern District of Florida, that is the Miami area, because there are um, people in Miami as well, students in Miami as well. And we want the court to immediately hear the case to make a preliminary decision that this is wrong so the kids could go back to school. We've um, currently, the judge um, has ordered the, that the state and the school districts provide their response before August 24th and gave the parents another seven days to apply. Got it. If you could help us a little bit in understanding what the Americans with Disabilities Act is about and how it would apply in this case. The Americans with Disabilities Act was intended to ensure that all persons with disabilities have equal access to all public entities such as schools and courts and all public accommodations such as businesses. Um, so what they can't, what an entity can't do is it cannot exclude persons with disabilities or cannot put barriers in front of their participation in, in programs and services. How, how this all fits in is that when the governor says schools cannot enforce a mask mandate, it essentially prohibits the schools from implementing what's needed for these kids to go to schools, whether it's a mask, whether it is to be in a safe environment. It takes away the power from the school to do what's required by federal law in order to give these parents and children access to the schools. Now, Matt, one of the really concerning things in your lawsuit is where you're talking about the disproportionate impact on kids with disabilities from COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, there's been... There's been studies of 
persons who have, who have gotten COVID and people with developmental or intellectual disabilities are more likely, number one, to get COVID and number two, to have more serious effects or death from COVID. I believe for persons with Down syndrome, the death resulting from COVID is about three to five times more than the general population. And there's many different reasons from underlying medical conditions to the ability to advise caretakers or others about how somebody feels, what the symptoms are, and the effects that that the disease is happening. So there's many more factors involved. And when it comes to kids that are immunocompromised, kids with kidney disease, or kids with upper respiratory issues such as asthma, it also increases the severity of, of the pandemic as well. What is a scary situation for um, parents in general is an even scarier situation, I would imagine, for parents of, of kids with disabilities. And it's, it's not really something that is unusual for schools to deal with. Schools have always dealt with issues such as requiring a whole panoply of vaccinations in order to go to school, or if a student is allergic to peanut butter, then the school implements a a no peanut policy so that one child does not have to have a severe allergic reaction to peanut butter. This is no different, no further slicing out of person's personal liberties as what's happened for the past 50 or 60 years in schools. Matt, thank you so much for explaining what this lawsuit is about and and what the concerns are among many parents of kids with uh, disabilities. Judy, tell me a little bit about your 10-year-old son, Will. So I would be happy to. Will is one of my favorite things to talk about. Will, he's 10, he's adorable, he's charming, he's gregarious, he's very social. Um, He has always been in public school. He started uh, what they call VE pre-K, which is varying exceptionalities pre-kindergarten when he was three. He transitioned out of what we would call early steps and into the public school. They had a preschool program that started at three for kids with, with disabilities. And what they would do is put them in a class with typical kids so that they learn to develop their language skills, their communication skills, their socialization skills alongside their typical peers, which was fantastic. It is such a great program. I advocate for it everywhere I go. And it really made a difference for us just in terms of having him what they used to call mainstreamed, we now call included in a typical education environment as soon as possible. So he's gone to this school from the day he turned three until he did kindergarten, first grade, second grade. He was in the middle of second grade when the pandemic hit, he came home for spring break, he never went back. So we did third grade online at home, just like all the other kids in his class. And it wasn't ideal, but we survived, you know, we handled it I actually had to quit my job to stay home and help him because usually he would have a paraprofessional in school with him, just sitting next to him, helping him turn his computer on and, you know, find the right Zoom class or whatever it was. You know, when he's in physical school, it's opening the book and helping him find the right chapter and keeping him, just keeping him on track. He just kind of has a little buddy there. 
Um, so once we pivoted to virtual, that was me, you know, and I, I now had to be his educational paraprofessional, which I'm not very good at. And I'm a much better lawyer than I am a teacher, I think. Um, <laughs> and it, it also added the component of, you know, I'm his mother and I don't want to be the taskmaster for him, which is another reason that we never had homeschooled him. We wanted him to go to school like all of the other kids. He has an older brother. Jack is 13. He does great in school when they both were virtual last year. Will you know, hung in there in third grade. He did okay. Jack knocked it out of the park in seventh grade. He did fantastic. He got great grades and he studied and he learned a lot and he was able to manage that interface better than Will was. So Will barely scraped by in third grade and he missed school and he missed his friends and he missed his teachers. And he was always asking, when can I go back to school? When can I see his teacher's name was Mrs. McGuire. When can I see Mrs. McGuire? He was asking for his friends you know, we would FaceTime with his friends throughout the year, but it wasn't the same. He misses going to art and PE and music and lunch and recess. And he really just loves that social environment and being around other people. He sounds like a great kid. He really does. Why did you join this lawsuit? What's, what made you step into this? All along throughout last year and this year, we were looking ahead and trying to figure out what we were going to do because even throughout last year, we tried as hard as we could. The school was great about working with us and helping to accommodate us, but he was losing his skills and he wasn't getting the amount and quality of services that he would ordinarily get under his individualized education plan. Um, let's say it prescribed 90 minutes a week of speech therapy, 60 minutes a week of occupational therapy. We were doing all of that virtually and that's really hard. Speech, it's difficult occupational, it's practically impossible. Um, and we were able to kind of modify some of his goals so that his goals were more oriented towards typing a sentence, you know, learning how to use the caps lock, things like that. Um, but we weren't getting the services that we were supposed to get. So going into the summer, we were thinking, okay, well, maybe it'll be safe by the summer. He can go to summer school and get that learning loss wrapped up, you know, and just kind of recoup some of what he had lost. And then the summer came it was no safer. And that's when the education commissioner for Florida, who's Richard Corcoran, who was also named in this lawsuit, had decided that he was going to threaten to defund any school district that offered that virtual synchronous learning model, which is what we had been using all last year. And then suddenly that rug was pulled out from under us and everyone else. And we didn't have that option to help keep Will engaged in his education but also safe at home. So over the summer, we went without services completely, which usually he would pick up speech and occupational therapy. Even during the summer, the school provided it year round through his IEP. But then this summer, there was, they were telling us there was no way to provide those services because they weren't able to offer them virtually because the state had threatened their funding. So Judy, it's not just that you could do what you did last year because that type of virtual education is no longer being provided. Correct. And that's something that inured to the benefit, not only of children with disabilities, but of all children. My other son stayed home and learned virtually so that he could stay safe. And we had that kind of as a backup so that the kids who did go to school in person, if they got sick or if they got quarantined because someone near them got sick, they could seamlessly pivot to that virtual platform and stay engaged with their same teachers and their same classes and their same peers and stay connected. And they were able to maintain that continuity of their education because we had that safety net. And it was 
very successful. It's really the only thing that kept not just my child with disabilities, but every child engaged and learning and plugged in. And it was nice to have that option. So when we realized we wouldn't have it this year, when we met with the school, we convened his IEP team and they informed us that the only thing that they could offer Will for this fall was inclusion in a, a giant regular classroom that was already pushing the state class size limits. They can't mandate masks. They can't social distance because they have too many kids in there. And we, we know that that is not a safe environment for Will to be in. And they wouldn't even consider having him pivot to virtual, even if it's not ideal, even if I have to take another year off of my job to stay home and help him, even that's not available to us because the state is threatening their funding. Governor DeSantis, he frames the executive order as sort of defending or protecting parental choice. I wonder, Judy, how you would frame this situation. I would not frame it like that at all. I think it's grossly irresponsible. I think that it barely veils his contempt for Floridians to frame it that way. I think Governor DeSantis is just dog whistling to his base by saying that. And to frame it as parental choice, it's just, it is incomprehensible to me because this is a public safety measure and we don't have parental choice to let our kids ride in the front seat of the car when they're babies and not strap them into a car seat in the back seat. We know that that's safe. We've proven that it's safer and it's necessary. So I think it's more analogous to seatbelt laws. You know, we used to, you used to be able to smoke on a plane. You used to be able to smoke in a restaurant, but now we know that that's harmful to children and we have to have public policy that prevents people from doing things like that. So it's, it's just anathema to everything that we've been taught about how to raise our children, that he would frame that as public choice. Someone making that choice infringes on my children's safety and Will's ability to access his education. Judy, thank you so much for talking with us. And Matt, thank you for taking the time. It's just been a real pleasure to talk with you. Great, thank, thank you, you so much, much, Joe. Joe Burns with that interview. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Production assistance for this week's show from Joe Burns. Editorial guidance from our managing editor, LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen back to archived shows at wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.